Welcome to Seven Hills Fellowship. My name is Jefferson Bennett, and uh, I'm on staff here at, uh, at Seven Hills Fellowship. And if you're visiting with us, uh, you've caught us in what is the second week of a new series on the Minor Prophets. And the, uh, the Minor Prophets are no joke. <laughs> uh, as we saw last week, uh, they have a tendency to cover material in a real raw honest way. And the Lord uh, does not hold back in the minor prophets. So I want to prepare you all this morning as we get ready to read God's word, just to, to, to settle in and, uh, and be prepared. This is not exactly light reading. Um, you know, part of what I've been in grad school the last several years um, to do is, is to really look at a book of the Bible and to say, what is God saying in this book? And it's a real joy, it's a real challenge, but also one of the things that it means is, is that uh, I am bound to not simply pick something from the book and say, here's what I'd like to talk about, but really, to be faithful, I've got to tell you exactly what the book says from start to finish and what it was intended for in its original context to be able to tell you today, what does it mean for us as the people of God? What does it mean for the church in the 21st century? And so, uh, I think that's why BP went out of town this week, is because we're in Habakkuk, and Habakkuk is a serious book. Uh, and so, I just want to say that as preparation this morning, because this is a serious time of turmoil for the people of God, okay? This is a serious time. Our prophet this morning is Habakkuk, and the time period is the early 600s B.C., the location is Jerusalem in the southern kingdom of Judah, and the context is context is this. God had already exiled the northern kingdom Israel by the Assyrian Empire about 100 years earlier, and now the southern kingdom uh, of Judah, which has had a slightly better record uh, in being faithful to the Lord, slightly better record, um, is now uh, facing the same fate because they too have been riddled with wickedness and faithlessness turning away from the Lord. And 2 Kings 21, just to give you a picture of how bad things had gotten, King Manasseh in Judah, who was just before Habakkuk's time, is said to have, quote, burned his son as an offering. At that point, when Judah had become as unthinkably wicked as its neighboring nations, the Lord vowed to hand them over to destruction. I warned you, this is not light reading. In this private conversation between Habakkuk and God, Habakkuk is recognizing the ongoing evil in Judah. And at the same time, he's noticing the Babylonians are really pressing in on the Assyrians, and there's some trouble stirring for us. Now, unlike most of the prophets who are bringing a word of the Lord to the people, Habakkuk, this morning, as we're going to read here in a minute, is bringing a word of the people to the Lord himself. And we get the benefit this morning of reading this conversation. So I want to invite you to pray with me, and then we'll dive into the book of Habakkuk. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, as we have already declared through song and through prayer and through confession this morning, you are on the throne. You are almighty God. And we come before you this morning, Lord, ready to hear from you in your very word. Please speak and fill our time with truth. 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Habakkuk 1 begins like this. Habakkuk cries out, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. And now the Lord answers him back. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I'm rising up the Chaldeans, that bitter, hasty nation who march the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather their captives like sand. At kings, they scoff. At rulers, they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up the earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Habakkuk comes before the Lord in a private conversation and says, I am upset about the injustice that I see around me. And how does God respond to him? God is more upset than Habakkuk. He's more upset at the injustice. He agrees with him, but unbeknownst to Habakkuk, the Lord has already set a plan in motion. He's sending these Chaldeans, another word for the Babylonians, to wipe out this precious chosen people of the Lord's. These are the ones whom he has raised up, whom he has nursed from their infancy, ever since he took Abraham out to that starlit night and said, look up at the heavens and I will make your name, your people, a great nation, as many as the stars. But now that nation is coming to an end. Habakkuk responds to the Lord and says this, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord, for you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You, who are purer eyes than to see evil, cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You have made mankind like the fish of the sea, like the crawling things that have no rulers. He brings them out with a hook. He drags them with his net. He gathers them in the net, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net, makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Habakkuk responds in utter confusion 
because he knows who God is, that he is just, that he is good, that he is caring and loving, and yet he sees him doing things that are inconsistent with his character. How would you raise up a nation worse than us to settle our wrong? It doesn't make sense. Habakkuk's looking around him and says, we're bad, but we're not as bad as them, right? We just need a little alteration, a little kick in the pants. That's fine. What's, what is going on here, though? You see, Habakkuk was looking around at his present and going, things have gotten bad. They had just had this King Josiah who was really, really good, and they had started to shift from that, and, and things were getting bad in the present. And he says, we need a turnaround. But God is actually not looking the same place that Habakkuk is looking. He's not looking at Habakkuk's present circumstance in this decision. He's looking before Habakkuk. He's looking before the good king, Josiah. He's looking at who we mentioned earlier at Manasseh. 2 Kings 23 tells us that still, after all the good reforms of Josiah, after all of his turning to the Lord, after all of his heart being beckoned back to God and reforming the nation, still, the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah out of my sight as I have removed Israel. I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem. It's as if the Lord can't let go of what Manasseh did. It's like he can't let go. He can't let it go unpunished. Burning a child as a sacrifice, bringing idols into the house of the Lord, doing who knows what other kinds of evils in the nation. No, the Lord says, you've gone too far and justice is due, it's overdue, and the Babylonians are coming, and they will destroy Judah. The Lord speaks back to Habakkuk and tells him in chapter 2 what is going to happen. The Lord answered me, write the vision and make it plain on tablets so that he who runs may read it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. It seems slow, but wait for it. It will surely come and not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Verse 12, shifting now to his judgment on Babylon. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Verse 16, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man, the violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. And then he closes with our call to worship this morning. But the Lord 
is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. You see, God isn't just going to punish his people, Judah. He is going to bring justice to the Babylonians as well. He's going to judge all the puffed up, proud nations. And at the same time, he says, he's going to justify all those who place their unfailing faith in him. He ends the conversation by saying, I am God, I am holy, let all the earth keep silence. In other words, don't speak. There's not another word about it. And this concludes the conversation between Habakkuk and God. There's nothing more to be said here. Oh, still, there's still one last chapter, but that comes later, after Habakkuk has had time to think about what God has just said. Okay, everybody breathe in and out. It was heavy. What we've just read in the first two chapters of Habakkuk is this. God's wrath is just. I know some of you here may be uncomfortable with the concept of the wrath of God. It's an uncomfortable thing. But I want you to consider the alternative to a just, wrathful God. Would we have a God who doesn't call wrong, wrong? Would we have a God who lets injustice and wrongdoing just go unpunished? Who just dismisses murder or slavery or racial inequality or any manner of wrong, wickedness in this world? Of course we wouldn't. Of course, because that's not justice, right? That's not right. And God's wrath flows out from this source of justice. It flows out from that and from him. And his wrath exists because there's wrongdoing in the world. He tells Habakkuk he plans to put a stop to it. Now there's good news in Habakkuk, but the good news starts with the bad news, as we've just read. This world is wicked. Our sin is deathly serious. And God's wrath will come to those who remain in their wicked and sinful ways. So the natural question at this point is, what will happen to God's people? After time to collect himself, Habakkuk prays a psalm to the Lord, saying in chapter 3 these words, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of years, revive it, in the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk responds almost like Job here, doesn't he? I had heard of you, but now I have seen you. Now I know you. I know that you are the Lord. I know that you are just. He says he fears his works, and in the midst of years, revive, meaning Lord, make this quick. Make it quick and keep it short. In wrath, remember mercy. And this is one of the places we find this ray of good news in Habakkuk. In wrath, remember mercy. Remember that star-filled night, O Lord, with Abraham, 
Remember the promise to make us a great nation. Remember, Lord, the prophet, he doesn't disagree with God's wrath or argue the way that he is executing his justice. He says, even in your wrath, even in your justice, Lord, remember we belong to you. The prophet calls on God to remember one thing, the one thing that rivals his wrath, and that is his love. His love. Yes, God's wrath is just, but his love, his love is merciful. Yes, Judah would be sent off in exile. Yes, they would be disciplined, but the end of the story is they would not be destroyed. God's wrath is just, but his love is merciful. He is still their God. He is still a loving father to his people. Hebrews 12 says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. The Lord was disciplining Judah, for his sins were many, but he was doing it out of love, like a father loves and disciplines his child. This is why they were exiled and yet not destroyed. He's faithful to keep his promise, and he is going to remain with his people despite their sin. My daughter is four and a half years old, and um, anybody here who's parented through the twos and threes knows how uh, important and challenging discipline can be, right? Uh, it's like all of a sudden they go from cute, chubby little fat babies to uh, terrors. I mean, in just like an instant, right? And uh, so discipline becomes really important. And I remember for those, those couple years where we had to turn that corner and discipline our daughter, um, I, wanted to be, I wanted to have a, a way to show her what we were doing, right? I wanted to be able to explain to her why is daddy and mommy coming alongside you and punishing you Uh, disciplining you for when you have sinned, when you've been disobedient. And I picked up this image from a book called Shepherding a Child's Heart, which is a wonderful book on how to to do just this. And I take my ring off with her. I grab her, scoop her up in my arms. I take my ring off, and I ask her, Elizabeth, sweetheart, what is this? And she says, that's a circle. I said, that's right. And I said, and who's inside the circle? She says, well, that's where Daddy and Mommy and Jesus are. I said, that's right. We're inside the circle. I said, what are you when you're inside the circle? And she says, I'm safe. I said, that's right, you're safe. Then I ask her, what's out here? What's outside the circle? She said, danger. I said, that's right, danger. I said, and what is the most dangerous thing in the world for you? And she says, disobedience. That's right, baby, disobedience. And then, this is the key, y'all, what is daddy's job? And every time, I mean, it doesn't matter how bad the punishment is going to be, it doesn't matter how big the consequence is, every time she would get this smile on her face. And she'd look at me and she'd say, Daddy's job is to save me, to rescue me from danger. 
That's right, sweetheart. And that's why I'm disciplining you now. Because this small discipline now is nothing in comparison with how the world will punish you for your disobedience later. This disobedience now is nothing. It's a light and momentary affliction compared to what could happen to you in the future when the consequences get higher, when the stakes are higher. And that's what the Lord is saying here to Habakkuk. I'm going to discipline my people because I love them, because I care for them. So the natural question is this then. How do you know if you're loved by God? How do you know? How can you be certain that he loves you? That you're being disciplined like Judah and not being destroyed like the Babylonians will be? How do you know? Well, the answer is back in chapter 2. Remember what God said in 2.4? He said, Behold, his soul is puffed up, not upright within him, but the righteous, the justified ones, will be living, will live by his faith. What is that? Where did God pull that from, you might ask? In the midst of his wrath, he tells Habakkuk that life is still available to those who are considered righteous by their faith. And this is what he said to Abraham. When Abraham believed the Lord, Genesis tells us it was counted to him as righteousness, that he was justified before his heavenly father. The proud will perish, but God remembers Abraham. He remembers his promise, and those with faith will live. And this is how you can tell if God loves you. This is how you can tell, is if you have faith. Okay, faith in what? What what does faith mean? Well, fast forward 500 years, the first century AD, and the ancient Romans had a concept of faith that I think was quite helpful as Paul began to unpack this concept of faith to the early church in the Greco-Roman world. You see, the Romans have these coins, and their word for faith was fides. They have these coins with fides on it. And do you know what the symbol was for fides? Blake, come up here, bro. This is the symbol for fides in Rome. It's your hand. That. This is the symbol. This is faith. Blake, try to go that way. I'm going with Blake. All right, now we'll come back this way, all right? Blake and I are going, wherever we're going, we're going together at this point. You see that? We're going hand in hand. Thanks, bro. Faith was a holding on, a grabbing hold of something, a clinging to something for life. Fides, faith. Those who have this faith will live. Okay? Faith is holding on to one another. So, perhaps God is saying we need to hold on to Habakkuk. Maybe he's saying hold on tight. Well, to what? What am I holding on to? Well, Paul explains in his masterful letter to the Roman church, after he's quoted Habakkuk 2.4, and he's gone through an apologetic for God's wrath like I have this morning, he then turns a corner and explains in 3.21, he says this, now the righteousness of God, his justice, has been manifested apart 
from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jews, Babylonians, Assyrians, everyone. But they're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the faith that the Lord has in mind in Habakkuk. Faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. For where else does God's just wrath and his merciful love meet perfectly but on the cross where his own boy went willingly to save the world. This is how you know you're a child. This is how you know you're a child and not just a Chaldean. You place your faith in Jesus. You grab hold of him, and by God, you don't let go. This is the offer on the table this morning for us, Seven Hills Fellowship, for every person here to grab hold by faith to grab hold of Jesus, to begin a hand-in-hand relationship with the God and his son, Jesus Christ. Whenever you look around at hardship, those illnesses that linger, those bills that are past due, those relationships that just won't work, and you wonder, what on earth is God doing here in my circumstance? You look back before all that to the cross. Remember what God is up to. He's paid the debt. He's saving the world from its sin, from his wrath, and disciplining them out of this amazing love. Whenever you wonder if you're indeed a beloved child of his, does he even love me? How could he love me? I want you to remember his memory of Manasseh in punishing Judah. He couldn't let go of what he recalled. How much better do you think God's memory is now of the cross of his own son where his boy bled and died? Now the Lord can't let go of the cross. He can't punish anyone who has held on to the son, Jesus, by faith. He won't It's permanently fixed in his mind as the justice for all who have faith in him. And the best part is, is that we will live. As the song said, we cry out to dry bones, come alive. There is life in Jesus forever. See, God's wrath still exists because wrongdoing in the world still exists. Yes. All those who are proud and puffed up, they will perish for sure. But for those who take hold of Jesus, friends, for those who take hold of Jesus, there is life. We will not perish, for God so loved the world, he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting, what? Life. He'll have life. So this morning, as we close, I want you to feel the freedom. I want you to feel the freedom of knowing Jesus 
of a hand-in-hand relationship with Christ. Feel the freedom like Habakkuk to hate injustice in our world and to fight for right. Feel the freedom. Feel the freedom to bring, as Ryan already said. Feel the freedom to bring your frustrations before the Lord. Feel the freedom to bring your hurts, your pains, your doubts. Feel the freedom to bring it all before the Lord. Don't be afraid to talk to God about a thing. But also, Christian, don't be afraid to bring it before the church as well. See, this is one of the misconceptions that we have about faith in our country, is we have this image in our minds, it seems, of faith being a solo person, an individual standing up after beating all the odds, right? Because they had faith. But this is not the image we get in the Bible of faith. That's the image of the puffed-up, proud person who doesn't have any need for a God or his Savior. Faith in the Bible tells us that we're sent out in pairs, in triplets, in groups, that we have a body of Christ, the church, here. That's what faith is. It's holding hand-in-hand with Jesus and hand-in-hand with the church. And that's why Seven Hills Fellowship exists. That's why we're here. The Lord has called us to be here to see the flourishing come to Rome, Georgia, to call people away from the wrath of God to his mercy, to his love in Christ Jesus. Remember God's wrath and his love and place your faith in Jesus Christ this morning. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian yet, I just wanna beg you for a minute to please consider handing your life over to the Savior. Please consider it seriously as we've heard from his word this morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word, which is truth. Lord, we need your mercy in our lives for our sin as a nation is much. Our sin as a city is much. Our sin as a church is much, and your wrath, Lord, is just. We confess the injustice seems insurmountable, and that's why we come to you this morning, because we need your mercy, Lord. We look to your love in Christ Jesus for how we need to respond this morning. We ask for the crucified King, the risen Lord, to come and take permanent residence in our homes and in our hearts. Lord, we need your spirit. We need your spirit's grip to tighten our grip on Christ and his kingdom, which is coming whether we're ready or not. Make us ready today, Lord. Make us ready for your judgment is nearing when your wrath and your love will be on display again. Come, Lord Jesus, and fill your bride. In your name we pray.